God, our Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, you are here with us in this place. You have given us all good things, and we have much to rejoice about. We give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this church. I pray in this time and in this place that you be here with us and that you speak in a mighty way. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Uh, if you'll begin, uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Psalm 127. If you don't, there's one in the pew back, uh, and then uh, it's quite likely they might uh, put it up here at some point. Um, though I encourage you to use your own Bibles, a la Ben Irvin. Uh, <laughs> Psalm 127 starts this way. A song of ascents. There it is. A song of ascents. And then it says, of Solomon. And uh, of Solomon, it's just worth saying, kind of sits as a unique background to this psalm in particular. You might think of David as like the great psalmist, and he certainly uh, wrote some uh, and uh, is a great psalmist. Uh, whether or not Solomon wrote this or, or he's meant to be some sort of like uh, background figure to what is about to be described in this psalm is, is uh, less clear. Uh, but uh, either way, there's really two things going on here. One, Solomon is known for well, a few things, but he's known for wisdom, isn't he? And this is certainly a wisdom psalm. It's filled with, as we'll see, lots of rock-solid wisdom. Frankly, it's the sort of thing you might actually be able to tell someone who is a non-believer, and they might say, yeah, there's some, there's some real truth in what you're telling me right now. The second thing, though, is there's an irony in Solomon being the background figure to this. You see, Solomon, if you don't know, his story does not end well in Scripture. I hate to break that news to you, uh, but it does not end well, does it? His story is one that begins well. He begins with tremendous amounts of wisdom, and he's been given this heritage from his father, and he's given the kingdom of Israel, and he's supposed to lead Israel into the next generation, but that's not what happens with Solomon, is it? There's discord in his household. He brings all sorts of foreign gods into the household as well. And by the end of his life, what happens? Well, the nation of Israel splits in two and never again comes back together as one. And it's a house divided. And yet, he is the background to the psalm we're about to read here. A psalm that talks about building houses wisely. A psalm that talks about building cities wisely. And it's worth asking, did Solomon do this? And it's definitely worth asking, are you doing this? Let's read together. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This is one of these passages where the truth is right there at the surface. I I don't know if you know this uh, about uh, having to teach or preach uh, scripture, 
But sometimes you really have to dig down deep to find uh, what is like offerable to kind of the common person or, or the common cause of, uh, of something you can use in your daily life. But, but this one sits right at the surface, doesn't it? If God's not building the house that you're building, it's vanity. Solomon, interestingly, talks a lot about vanity in another book, Ecclesiastes, right? If the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it are laboring vainly for no reason at all. And just to be clear here, it could mean that we're really talking about a physical house that somebody's built, but more likely, we're talking about a house in terms of perhaps a family. This is how Scripture often uses the word house. As you build your families together, if God's not in it, then what you are doing can come to ruin just like that. I love that Laura is, she, I think, reads my mind on a routine basis. It's remarkable. And to bring out that passage at the end of Matthew 7, and it's, it's Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's just given all of this wisdom, and then he says, you know, if you do this, well, it's like building a house on rock, But if you don't, you're building a house on sand and it's all going to get swept away, right? That's this right here. That's what Psalm 127 is also trying to teach us. If we're building this house without the Lord, well, it's all vanity. The house, of course, could uh, be family, but uh, I also invite you to think of it in terms of a life a lifetime. If you are trying to build your life in such a way that is without the Lord, what is it, right? What is it? But he goes on, and he says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. This is uh, what biblical scholars call a parallelism. Uh, and it's the saying the same thing twice in two different ways and meaning the same thing. You're building a house, you're building a city, but unless the Lord's there, unless the Lord's in it, it's all in vain. And then he twists it a little bit in verse 2. I like verse 2 a lot. I find verse 2 gripping, convicting. And he says, it is in vain. What are your vanities in this life? He, say, he, he names them here. He says, it's in vain that you rise up early and you go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Let's just slow down a second and let that wash over us. Because if we are laboring in vain, and I fear that some of us are, some more than others, if we are laboring in vain, what does that look like? It looks like us getting up really early in the morning. How many of us do that? I know a lot of you do. I know I do. Going to bed really late, working ourselves to the bone, and the psalmist says, 
To what end? What does it all come to? What's the point of it all unless the Lord is in it? It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. And here is my favorite phrase of the entire psalm. Eating the bread of anxious toil. I resonate with that too much. I have spent too many days eating the bread of anxious toil. Have you? Is your toil anxious? Is that what sustains you? Have you worked yourself so much that you realize, or at least that you think, that if I don't keep this pace up, if I don't keep working really hard like this, it's all going to fall apart. It's just, it's just, it's all going to fall apart. And the psalmist says there's a different way. It doesn't need to be like that. The, the anxious toil, the toiling in our anxiety, that is not how it's meant to be. He says that God gives what? He gives his beloved, that's us, he gives us rest or sleep or sanctuary or whatever word you want to put to this, right? He gives us peace. And then he goes on. In verse 3, he says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And it seems like he's really pivoted here. He seems like he was talking about this one thing, and now he's talking about this other thing. In fact, so much so that some people have suggested these are actually two songs I don't know that we need to go there. I think he is talking about the same thing. He's, he's talking about a life well built. And whether it's children that are a heritage or your strivings or uh, the, the, the uh, simple pleasures of life or, or the gifts that God gives you in any number of ways, they are a heritage or a blessing from God. They are arrows in the hand of a warrior. And then he says, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with these sorts of blessings. And he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This psalm has sat with me all week. I find myself ruminating over Unless the Lord, unless the Lord, unless the Lord is in it. What does that mean? I've asked myself, like, what are the mechanics of making sure that the Lord builds the house of my life? How do you do that? How do I engineer God being the one who is building the house of my life? And the best answer I came up with is, I cannot engineer that. As John 3.8 says, the wind blows where it's going to blow, 
and so does the Spirit of God. However, while I cannot engineer God's movement, I can, I can attune myself to his movements in life. And how do we do that? Well, spiritual disciplines like prayer and meditation, or the reading of scripture, or corporate worship. There's all sorts of ways in which we refine our own selves so that we stand uh, listening to and, and capable of being in tune with the Spirit's movement in life and in our lives. But we cannot force God's hand to build anything unless the Lord is in it, it says. But we cannot force the Lord to be in it. We must simply start building and trust and ask and plead that God is in it. This is how James puts it, our New Testament scripture for today, which I find to be almost identical to what we found uh, in, in the Psalms. James says this, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town. <laughs> I love that. Uh, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And then he rebukes this person. And by the way, who has not said something like that in life? I'm just going to go do this. And, and he says, you do not know what tomorrow is going to bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, this is what you ought to say. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Now, I will say this. If someone says to me on a routine basis, if the Lord wills, I'm going to come to your house today, uh, I would be annoyed by that at some point. However, uh, in one's heart, if one's recognizing that the life that they live is at the, uh, the, the will and the beckoning of God, that is something that I deeply encourage that inner life of faith that is routinely seeking to live out the will of God. This is what I want to encourage all of us to be doing. I have three pieces of advice, <laughs> if I dare, on uh, house building and building a house with the Lord being part of it. The first thing I'd say is this. Things are not always as they might seem when building a house, when building a life. Things are not always what they might seem. Uh, a quick short story here from a guy named Timothy Tennant. You may not know this man, but he is the president of Asbury Seminary, the seminary that I graduated from. Uh, and he tells a story that goes like this. He says, have you ever, it's his own life story, uh, have you ever felt God calling you to do something and then it all seems to go awry? only to find out years later how it all actually made sense. He says, in the summer of 1990, I left six years of pastoral ministry to work in Nigeria. However, we encountered numerous obstacles and finally were forced to abandon our plans and not move to Nigeria as we had planned. It was a difficult time for us as a family. When I returned to the United States from Nigeria, 
all my plans, which had seemed to be confirmed by God in so many ways, well, those plans were in tatters. And I recall telling my wife, he says, Julie, if God would just give me an explanation as to why we went through all of this, well, I could accept that. Have you ever said that? I've said that. (laughs) If I could just get an explanation for why this did not work out the way I thought this would work out, for why this had to be so hard, for why what I thought God was doing didn't turn out to be the way I thought it was going to turn out to be. And perhaps he's even thinking about Psalm 127 here, unless the Lord builds, and and surely the Lord would not build this kind of life, he might be saying. But things are not always what they seem. And he goes on. And he says, my wife responded wisely, as wives often do. God doesn't owe us an explanation. Our job is to be faithful and to follow him as best we can. That is very simple advice. It is very good advice. He doesn't stop there. So what happens next in his life? His life goes on. It went from tatters to something else, and he says, I ended up becoming the pastor of a small church in Carnesville, Georgia. That church was quite close to Toccoa Falls College, where I began to teach and eventually had a full-time career in teaching. And what he doesn't say in this story, but is the end of it all, or at least to this point, the end of it all. In 2009, he is asked to become the next president of Asbury Seminary a large and thriving seminary. And so a man who thought his life was in tatters had followed God in this one way that seemed to fall apart completely, well, through some dips and turns and weaves and bobs, he found his way to the presidency of seminary. Things are not always what they seem. Sometimes, uh, well, I found this quote the other day that I, that I quite liked, and it was playing again on the reel. I thought I'd bring it in again. It, it, this one goes like this. It says, maybe God has a bigger plan for me than I have for myself. Maybe God has a bigger plan for me than I have for myself. And when I think of, when I think of this uh, quote, I, I think, my plans seem big to me. But when played out to their ends, they often amount to very little. Or my plans seem big because they involve all the things that we are conditioned to desire. Maybe it's that house on the ocean, the fancy car, the shiny jewelry, whatever it is. Those are the dreams. But these are not all that big. And some of you might know this from personal experience, that once you've got those dreams, what inevitably happens? Well, there's some bigger dreams out there yet, There's always a bigger dream out there. There's always something more. And maybe you fulfill that dream of a lifetime, and you get there, and you're standing in it, and you think, well, surely there's more than this. So perhaps 
My dreams are not big enough. And it is God's dreams for us that we should be seeking anyway. When I hear the quote, maybe God has a bigger plan for me than I have for myself, what I hear is, maybe I don't know how to build a big enough life. Maybe what I think is big is actually quite small. And maybe my version of success needs to be reshaped and reframed entirely. David Brooks calls these resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. When you're my age, 42 now, and someone asks you, tell me about yourself, my inclination, probably your inclination, those of you who are like me, is to say something about your job title, maybe where you live, perhaps where you vacation to, or, or people you know, or the cars you drive, not in my case, but... Uh, Whatever that thing might be, right? These are definitely, these are resume virtues. These are things you might strive for at some point in life, and you really, you're you're trying to get to the top of that rat race. And you're trying to, to make that resume bigger and bigger. But, and not to get too dark here, when you're in your casket, At the end of it all, no one's talking about what car you drove. I promise you that. Nobody's talking about that. Frankly, if they are, you might have done something wrong. Instead, what they're likely talking about is how kind you were, how generous you were, how brave you were, what a doting father or grandfather you were. They're talking about all these other things. And so you have these these eulogy values or virtues, and you have these resume virtues. And we're too quick to believe the lie that it's the resume virtues that matter most in life. And I actually wouldn't doubt, and I don't want to say that they don't matter, It's okay to have some resume resume virtues and and some resume desires in your life. I actually think this is a good thing. And kids, this is important. But we should never lose sight of those eulogy virtues. Those those must be in place. We should never lose sight of those Sermon on the Mount virtues. Because that is how we get to the end of the life with our dignity intact with our integrity intact. And people look at us and, we say, and they say something like, he lived a good life. The second thing I'd say, the piece of advice, uh, is that it's never too late. It's never too late to build that house the way it should have been built. And it doesn't really matter what age you are. It's funny, when I was 18, the mistakes I made somehow, uh, like I thought, I'm, I'm just too far along, you know. I've made too many mistakes in life, and, and therefore I can't uh, become uh, the person I want to be. I, I, and my word, <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I only, right? But even if you're 40 and you're saying, you know, I, I've just, I've, I've built this house in such a way, I've built my life in such a way, it's just too late now. 
it's not too late. You might be 80 and saying it's too late. And I promise you, it's not too late. All of this, everything, the eulogy virtues versus uh, the resume virtues, it all applies to all ages and it is never too late. The grace of God is able to cover the 18-year-old and the 80-year-old alike. And today is the day to begin designing and living out that life worthy of your calling, a calling that God has placed upon you, worthy of who you were designed to be. And so stop building in vain, as the psalmist says, and start building with the Lord. Now, there are many paths in life. We all know this, right? Some seem like they're quicker paths to the end goal we're trying to get to, to whatever that good life is that we want. But many of these paths are shortcuts that have nothing to do with the path of God. There are paths that may lead to quicker financial success, quicker fame, quicker promotion. If I just cheat on this test here, if I just lie about this work experience on this uh, job interview here, if I just pretend to be someone that I'm, I'm not, or if I just focus on making money now, then later on I can focus on doing the Lord's work. If I just focus on, on really building that career and eating the bread of anxious toil so that later, later, I'll enjoy that peace. All of these shortcuts are missing something. They are shortcuts to building a good life, but they inevitably fail if they are not of the Lord. Unless the Lord is in it, you strive in vain. And the house you are building is a house built on sand. But it is not too late, which is the point of this second piece of advice. It's not too late to start building that house in a different way. But I would look at the teens here and say this. Building the house you should be building now is a whole lot easier than 20 years from now having to tear down part of a house that you've been building and rebuild it all over again. Or building a house 30 years from now that you should have built 30 years prior. And now is the time. Whether, again, you're 20, 40, 80, now's the time. It's never too late. Last piece of advice is this one. It's the best piece uh, at least it's the most hopeful piece I can give you. Uh, there's a, a Portuguese proverb that says that God writes with crooked lines. However crooked your life has been, whatever that past looks like, God can and does do something with it. That gives us all hope. That gives us all a reason to keep pressing forward. The cross, well, it, this is what does it, right? 
is because we, we can go to the cross and we can remind ourselves of the ways in which God has forgiven us time and time and time again. And a life that was lived in all sorts of crooked ways, God manages to use and to write straight lines with it. The bad news that we must all face very squarely is really that middle part of the James passage, which says that our life is a mist. All of our strivings and our efforts in this life are temporary. It's just a fact of life. We are mortal, and we will pass on. This is, frankly, what the season of Lent reminds us of. And I know it's not fun to talk about it, but it's true, and someone's got to say it. Whether 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now, the earth is going to forget you. It's going to forget me. This is the truth of our mortality. And Lent, Lent, the season we're in, it reminds us of our mortality and it leads us to the cross, to death, to Christ's death, yes, but frankly to our own as well. And again, this is the bad news, which is always followed by some really good news. The good news is that death doesn't win. Death doesn't have the final word. Christ's death most certainly did not. That's what Easter Sunday is all about. And your death will not have the final word either if you are found in him. There is something beyond the cross. There is resurrection. As Romans 6, 5 says, For if we are uh, united with him in a death like his, well, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so if the Lord builds the house, it's not in vain. The immortal one, God, can add immortal value to our mortal lives. The immortal one can take the crooked lines of our lives and write straight with them. The immortal one can take our strivings and our yearnings, even that bread of anxious toil, and do what we are not able to do of our own accord. But... We must adopt the immortal one's values. We must think with the mind of Christ and not the mind of the world. We must love what he loves, and we must love the way he loves. Unless the Lord builds your house, you labor in vain. But if the Lord does build your house, it most certainly is not in vain. Even if all others say otherwise, you are building something that will last beyond death and mortality. You are building something that is worthy of resurrection and worthy of the kingdom come. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us so much that you came, became a man and died on behalf of us and demonstrated power over death itself, giving us victory over death itself. Lord, let us lead lives that are worthy of your resurrection. Resurrect 
us. Lord, may we be people who build the houses of our lives in such a way that you are in them from top to bottom. Every structure of the building of our lives may it be of you. God, we surrender ourselves completely to your will, to your desire, that our lives might indeed be lives lived in accordance with who you are and who you truly created us to be. And may today be the day that we begin. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.